This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 13th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we talk about genetic diversity in Mexico. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of daily news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Mexico harbors great cultural and ethnic diversity, but how much of this diversity is reflected in the genes of its people? I spoke with Carlos Bustamante about what can be learned about history, immigration, and health by examining the genetic structure of Mexico. So this large collaborative effort that included investigators from the U.S., from Mexico, and and from other parts of the world sought out to understand patterns of genetic variation within Mexico and their clinical implications. And so we brought together samples from within Mexico, Native American samples that had been collected by local anthropologists who'd worked with those communities for years. We brought in samples from the National Institutes of Genomic Medicine who had been characterizing patterns of variation for the mestizo or admix samples. And then studies from the genetics of asthma in Mexico and in Mexican-Americans, largely led by Esteban Bouchard, my um, co-senior author. And in putting these data together, we found just a striking amount of uh, variation genetically within Mexico, where we could clearly differentiate the Native American groups one from the other based on the genetic data, and that this played out in the variation and patterns of genetic variation in the mestizo population, so that individuals of admixed ancestry from the north were different from those in the Yucatan Peninsula, and that recapitulated that Native American component of variation. Finally, this is relevant for clinical care because it translates into potential diagnosis differences in lung function and disease based on whether or not you include the Native American variation within Mexico into the equations and the ways that those diagnoses are made. It seems like a lot of things surprised you about the results from your study. Can you talk a little bit about how the structure that you are seeing in modern populations reflects pre-Columbian populations and why some of that was surprising? What was really surprising to us about this study is just 
the richness of the variation that we saw and how substructured it was. So normally, uh, we would have expected there to be some amount of ambiguity from the genetics as to where an individual came from in terms of the different Native American groups that we studied. But what we were able to see is that there was such amount of variation, and that variation was kind of clearly delineated by ethnic group that, based on the genetics, we could clearly differentiate the different Native American groups. The other really surprising part is that that diversity and variation within the Native American groups translated into the mestizo or, or the admix groups. So you know, you've had sort of 500 years of admixture and within Mexico and opportunity for movement. In fact, there's a ton of local and regional substructure that we were able to detect based on the genetic data we collected. So you're saying that despite colonialism, all these people coming to the country, you're still seeing a division along some of those old cultures. Was this a surprising result because so many people have come into Mexico through colonization and just a very large increase in their population size in the past 500 years? Right. So, you know, Mexico had one of the largest pre-Columbian Native American populations. And so what we're seeing is that as the mestizo population grew and expanded, that the admixture process really involved the local Native American groups. And so that the individuals with admixed ancestry in the Yucatan Peninsula today have a larger fraction of that Yucatan Peninsula slash Mayan Native American diversity, whereas those in the north have more of a Seri or Toromara Native American component, and those in the center of the country have more of a Nahuamistec Native American component. And so it's exactly that sort of um, recapitulation of the geographic structure that we're seeing in both the Native and the Mestizo groups. Right. Well, how diverse are we talking here? I mean, how different genetically are people, say, from the North and the South in, in Mexico right now? That's a great question. You know, it depends on different measures, but using one measure called uh, Bright's FST, which is a measure of population differentiation, we see that genetically some of the groups in the north may be as different from the groups in the south as Europeans are from some Asian groups. So it's um, quite a striking level of differentiation that we've saw in the data. And let's talk about the medical component that you mentioned. How does, you know, knowing this information about the substructure of the Mexican population have an effect maybe on health research or, or, or that kind of thing? There are two ways that understanding the population structure is going to be relevant. One is for the design of future medical genetic studies. So as we think about mapping traits of interest, we now know that we need to sample deeply within Mexico and understand that population substructure if if we want to be able to identify variants that are going to be relevant throughout the country and and really relevant to other countries. In the U.S., Mexicans make up the, the largest proportion of Hispanic Latinos, which is the largest minority ethnic group in the U.S. today. The second way in which our study is important in terms of clinical care is in measuring lung function. So when lung function is measured, they use an equation similar to what gets used for height. So when you go in and you get measured, you're in the 80th or 90th percentile for height, you have a sense of what that means. And those equations are different based on ethnicity. And what we found is that in estimating lung function, it was really important to include not only the proportion of Native American ancestry, but whether we had Northern Native American ancestry, Native American ancestry from the Yucatan Peninsula, or Native American ancestry from the center of the country that improved the model significantly to include that component. The reason this is important for the diagnosis of disease is that where you land on that reference equation could make the difference between 
designation as being healthy or having a particular impairment. It could tip you over on one side or the other. Is this kind of result unusual where you see such a strong substructure to a population? Have other studies that have taken a similar approach seen similar results? So we've worked for years in lots of different populations. We've worked in Europe, we've worked in Africa, we've worked in the Caribbean, we've worked in Pacific Islands, and it's incredible to see the richness of human genetic diversity. We just, humans are beautifully diverse, and we see this being played out in in the genetics. And what was so striking about Mexico is that we would have expected, you know, some differentiation among the Native American groups, but we would not have expected each Native American group to kind of clearly form their own cluster in genetic space that then allowed us to understand the components of substructure in in the mestizo populations. Carlos, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege and pleasure to talk with you today. Carlos Bustamante and colleagues write about how the genes of modern Mexicans reflect the country's past in this week's issue. Now we have David Grimm, the editor for our online daily news site, and he's here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on a new contender for quake prediction. As of yet, there is no reliable signature that allows prediction of large earthquakes. But now researchers have noticed a non-seismic event that correlates with earthquakes. What is this mysterious marker, Dave? Well, Sarah, these are magnetic pulses, and these are blips. They're very, very faint. In fact, the strongest of them is about only one one-hundred thousandth of the typical strength of Earth's magnetic field. And these are really short pulses that seem to have occurred before some major earthquakes, a recent earthquake in Peru, also a large earthquake that occurred north of San Jose in California in 2007. So these have been correlated with a couple of different earthquakes What do they think happens to cause these magnetic pulses? Well, what the researchers propose in this study is that there is a connection between these pulses and the earthquake, that they think these magnetic blips emerge from microscopic changes in crystals in rocks that are under seismic stress deep within Earth. In many types of rocks, particularly volcanic rocks, they can have a substantial amount of water locked inside them, and these crystals are chock full of oxygen-oxygen bonds called peroxy bonds. And what the researchers are saying is that when these rocks are getting squeezed, these bonds break and they release negatively charged electrons, which remain trapped in place, and they create these positively charged holes in the crystal, and these somehow result in magnetic pulses. Right. So if you have electrons moving around, sometimes you get a magnetic field. And that's one explanation. Are there any other alternate explanations for why we're seeing these pulses? Well, one critic says that we really don't know enough about these pulses or the connection between earthquakes to start talking about these being a forecasting system. In fact, he relates a story from a few decades ago where Boston-based magnetometers started picking up a series of odd pulses every morning. It turned out these were not coming from deep within the earth, but actually from engineers cranking up Boston's trolley cars at a rail yard just a few kilometers away. So, so we've got to be a little bit careful about making these correlations until we know just a bit more. Next up, we have a story on Rue in rats. Most of us have felt regret now and then, and it looks like rats might too. Dave, what's the scientific definition of regret? Well, there actually is one, and it turns out that you have to distinguish regret from disappointment. Disappointment is 
not liking the way something turned out. But regret has more of a time element. It has to do with us recognizing that we've potentially made a mistake. We're recognizing that we made a mistake by looking back at a decision that we could have made that avoided that mistake. There's a bit of what the researchers call mental time travel going on there. And this has been thought to be such a complex ability that potentially only humans and other primates are capable of it. But there have been some signs that other animals, including rats, are also capable of regret. This sounds like a pretty fine distinction. How can one tell from looking at a rat that it's regretful versus disappointed? Well, the researchers set up a kind of a neat experiment. They called this restaurant row. And what it was was a circular runway with four spokes branching out from it. And these spokes led to different flavored food pellets. There was cherry, chocolate, banana, and plain. I'm getting hungry just talking about it. And what the rats were able to do was go down one of the runways to a food pellet, and then a sound would play that differed in pitch. And the higher pitch the sound, the more the rats would have to wait to get that food pellet. So the rats had to decide, is it worth it for me to wait and get this food pellet, or should I just go down another spoke and get another food pellet where I might have a shorter wait? Okay, so you have the scenario, you're pressed for time, you got to eat so much food and so much time, and you have to wait for food at different stations. How did the rat's behavior differ, whether they were experiencing regret, disappointment, or, you know, just getting to eat their lunch? So there were a couple different things the rats would experience. So in one instance, the rat heard a sound that indicated it had to wait a long time. And the rat didn't want to wait a long time, so it moved to another spoke. And it turns out at that other spoke, it also had to wait a long time. And that's not really regret because they kind of made the right decision. They knew they were going to have to wait a long time. They went somewhere else and things didn't work out very well. And so they were disappointed. It didn't work out better at the second spoke. But it's not the same as regret. What the researchers saw that indicated regret is the rats would go to one spoke and the time wait maybe wasn't that long. But the rat said, well, I still want to wait. So he would go to another spoke. And it turns out at that other spoke, he had to wait a long, long time. So he clearly made an error in judgment because he could have gotten his treat if he had just waited a few more seconds. But instead, he decided to press his luck. And it turns out he ended up at a spoke with a much longer delay. And so at that point, the rat is ostensibly thinking back and going, gosh, I really, I really should have just stayed at that other spoke. And that is regret. And the researchers actually saw the rats kind of looking back at these other spokes sort of wistfully as they describe it as this Homer Simpson moment where the rats are sort of mentally saying, dope, you know, I should have, I should have, should have stayed at that original spoke. Okay. So wistful rats, I can see the behavior going on, but the researchers also looked at brain activity. Did that line up with their observations of their behavior? That's right. They didn't want to just make these empirical observations of rat regret. They actually implanted some mini electrodes into the rat's brains. And they saw that when the rats were undergoing something that the researchers thought was regret, regions in the rat's brain that have been associated with regret in humans and other primates lit up, which was more evidence that the rats were feeling something like we feel when we feel regret. I'll buy that rats have feelings and that one of them is regret. Why is this something we need to know about? Well, when we study animals, we really want to be able to study things that are important to humans as well. Things like, in this case, maybe addiction, which is an example of decision-making gone wrong. And so when we're talking about things like regret, we want to figure out not only do other animals experience it, but how can we potentially learn more about these behaviors to be able to help humans potentially avoid their own regret. Lastly, we have a story on Mars's weather. 
Mars is cold on average about minus 63 degrees C. That's about minus 81 Fahrenheit. Even in the Martian tropics, things don't get much above minus 20 C. But now researchers are saying it may not feel that cold because of the lack of wind chill. Isn't Mars a windy place? Mars is a windy place, but the, one of the big differences between Mars and Earth is Mars has very little atmosphere. In fact, if you're walking along the surface of Mars, you're going to feel an atmosphere the same as you would feel as if you were 32 kilometers above the surface of Earth, about 2.5 times the cruising heights of jet aircraft. And what's significant about this very thin atmosphere is that's where a lot of wind chill comes from. So if we're standing on a street in a cold day, our discomfort doesn't just come from the temperature of the air. It actually comes from the air wicking away our heat. And that doesn't happen as much on Mars is because there's really not as much air, if you want to call it that, taking the heat away. With these factors in mind, how does Mars compare with Earth temperature-wise for someone, say, standing around on the street? <laughs> well, the researchers actually did some calculations, and they found out that, for example, if you were standing on a summertime afternoon on Mars in one of the tropical regions, you might only experience what felt like temperatures of about one degree Celsius, which is still cold, but it's not impossibly cold. Versus if you were standing in southern England in the winter and you were experiencing temperatures around 4.4 degrees C, but with windshield, actually temperatures would actually feel about zero degrees C. So you'd actually feel colder in southern England in the winter than on Mars in the tropics in the summer. Mars may feel a few degrees warmer than deep, dark, cold England in the winter, but what does this actually mean for, say, engineering and space exploration and that kind of thing? Well, it doesn't mean that we can all put our bathing suits on on Mars. In fact, we were still going to lose a lot of heat on Mars. Heat doesn't just get lost due to things like windshield. We lose a lot of heat due just to heat radiating off our bodies, and that's still a big problem on Mars. So spacesuits need to be designed to make sure that we conserve as much of our heat as possible. We've also got to be careful about picking up objects on the surface of Mars. Even though we may not feel terribly cold, one of the researchers says that picking up a rock from the shade of Mars would be like picking up a lump of dry ice. So you've got to be careful about what you touch. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why extreme weather events are increasing over the Indian Ocean. Also a story about a rare example of teaching that has been observed in the animal kingdom. For Science Insider, we've got a story about the NIH potentially getting a bit more money in 2015. Also a story about why Japan is resuming its scientific whaling. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. 
Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.